This is Colossians 4, verses 7 and following. Hear now the word of the Lord. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to uh, Archippus, see, what, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray now, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever looked up your family, uh, your family genealogy online? It's pretty amazing what's available out there for free now. Um, this week I went online and I searched through the census records of, uh, of, from Montgomery from 1920 and then 1930. I went to see about my great-grandfather, Edwin Harvey Allback Sr., uh, and where he was living and what his life was like. In 1920, he was 17 years old, and he was living with his parents and, his, and four siblings. I don't know if there are other siblings or not, but there were four living in the home. Uh, ten years later, in the 1930 census, he had married my great-grandmother, Elva, and was living with his in-laws. Uh, and in the same home, uh, you had my great-grandparents living with his in-laws, his sister-in-law lived in the house, and my great-grandmother's aunt. It's a lot of folks living together. You know, with a census, you get a snapshot of where people are living and some demographic information. You're not given a lot of details. In fact, we think about the difference between 1920 and 1930. A lot happened in America in those 10 years. In fact, my great-grandparents had had my grandfather, who was now two and a half years old in 1930, uh, and they were living with his in-laws. The Great Depression had hit, and so certainly that must have had something to do with it. You know, we're given these snapshots in a census of where people are, where they're living in a moment. And we have to kind of parse out the details of what's going on. Now, that's actually kind of what we have in our text today. As Paul concludes his letter to the Colossian church, which was meant to be shared with the region and now to us, 
uh, he gives us a bit of a census, a bit of a snapshot of where people are and what they're doing in A.D. 61 or 2 or 3, somewhere in that time frame. See, where is Paul? Paul is writing from imprisonment in Rome. And we get in these verses, did, did, you, did your eyes glaze over when you got to all the names? And you're thinking, I don't know who these people are and I don't really care. Uh, you know, it's kind of like reading the genealogy. Like, what's Parker going to say about these people today? Well, it turns out that we have a lot to learn from this list. What we find is that in the 30 years, this is 30 years later, from the empty tomb, within 30 years, the gospel had grown. The church had gone from being a very small band of people. Then came uh, the, the day of Pentecost. And then came these great missionary journeys of Paul and others. And with 30 years, it went from the empty tomb to now the very courts of the Roman emperor. We find in Philippians that there were imperial guards that had been converted through the ministry of Paul in prison. Lives had been transformed, and, and, and the Lord had raised up new laborers for His vineyard, servants of the gospel and ministers of the word. The, the names on this list show us that the gospel is for the very worst, like Paul, a, a man who sought to persecute and drag to their death men and women who loved Jesus. It, it was for the highly educated, like Luke. The gospel reconciles in bitter groups like the Jews and the Gentiles. We have Jewish and Gentile names on this list together. We find that it brings hope not just to wealthy homeowners like Philemon, but also to the lowest on the social strata like his slave Onesimus. This is just one snapshot of what the Lord was doing at a specific time, a census. Now we could look at the church in other decades, any decade, from then till now. And we would find that Christ's kingdom was going forth and people were busy about kingdom extension. You know, we live in a time, in, in a moment, I think especially in the evangelical church, it's, it's infected the evangelical church, an idea of pessimism. You know, we've watched so many hours of polarized news on television that I think sometimes we forget that the church is going forth and people are being saved and we know the direction in which history is going. Despair does not belong to the believer. I don't even think pessimism belongs to the believer. Instead, we have a king whose kingdom will not fail. We carry a gospel that provides hope and reconciles the most embittered people. And God calls us to be busy about kingdom work, telling people about those first two. So, three points, because it's a sermon. The first one, we serve a king whose kingdom shall not fail. We serve a king whose kingdom shall not fail. You know, I think sometimes we think of the church, and I'm not talking about First Pres, I'm talking about Christ's church throughout the world. I think sometimes we think about the church kind of like we think about political parties. If you think about the history of political parties in our country uh, since our founding, there have been ones that have come and gone. Ones that existed a long time ago that we hadn't even heard of. We have seen positions of the political parties completely flip-flop from decade to decade. Uh, we, we have seen time and time again that uh, we should not put our hope in people. 
uh, perhaps even the mess this last week, where we currently don't have a Speaker of the House. Uh, we, sh- we should not think of the church as a political party, wondering if it's going to succeed, if it's going to survive. The Lord doesn't promise that the Republicans or Democrats or Independents will, will last past tomorrow, but I will tell you that God says that the church will prevail because we serve a king whose kingdom will not fail. What do we think that Christ would let the church, which He obtained, which He purchased according to Acts chapter 20, with His blood, something so precious, do we think that He would let it fail? That, that He would let it wither on the vine? I'm here to tell you that Jesus wins. He has won, He is winning, and He will win. For we know how the story has begun and how it will end. And and this means that that, that He is far stronger than any headwind against us. See, the nature of the church, the nature of the church, and the existence of the church do not uh, depend on the latest poll numbers from Pew. They just don't. It's not a matter of surveys. We should not be hand-wringing, wondering if the church will survive. I'm here to tell you that Christ died for His church. His church is His bride. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus told Peter, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know that's not a defensive thing, right? It's not like the church is on the defensive and hell is coming at us and the gates stand strong. It's the other way around. The gates of hell are the defensive structure, and the church is charging forth into the domain of Satan, and nothing can stop its growth. People will continue to be saved. They will continue to have their lives transformed. People will go from being dead to alive. Marriages will be healed. People will be served. Strongholds of Satan in our lives will be broken down. Why? Because we serve a kingdom whose kingdom shall not fail. After I looked in the 1920 and the 1930 census, I looked in the 1940 census to see if I could find my great-grandmother's family with whom they were living in the 1930s, uh, and, and I couldn't find them. Uh, Archie Johnson, I think was his name. I can't remember. Uh, I could not find them. Now, I, I don't know if that was my skills to blame or, or they died. I, don't, I did not know them, and I don't really know their history. I pulled up the 1940 records, seeing if I would find them, wondering, will they be there? Y'all, we don't have to do that with the church. Wondering if in 10 or 20 or 30 years, if the church is going to be there. It will. It will. Why? Because God has saved us. We weren't always saved, right? I know you weren't. None of us were. He has saved us and He's put us here. And you know He did that two generations ago and three generations ago and four generations ago and five generations ago. And you know what? He's going to keep doing that until Christ comes again. We serve a king whose kingdom will not fail. We see this with Paul's story. You think about all the efforts, all the efforts of Satan that were thrown at Paul and his missionary companions as Satan tried to squelch the growth of the church. You know, if you're, going to, if you're going to kill something, you've got to kill it when it's low to the ground. You think about those weeds. If you don't deal with them this small, you know, they're going to be this big tomorrow. And that's how the church was. It grew like weeds, like wildfire. Think about all the times that Paul and his companions went up against persecution and how it backfired 
In fact, one of the church fathers said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. One of my favorite stories from Paul's missionary journeys comes from Acts 14. Uh, he had gone and, uh, to Lystra, uh, and, uh, and they stoned him, and they thought they killed him. Now, stoning is a really bad way to die, by the way. That's, that's not a pleasant way to go. And they're really good at stoning. And they came and stoned him. They thought he was dead and they left. This is what we read. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, praise God. Where did he go? He entered the city, the place that had just stoned him. And the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue the faith, and saying that, that, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So, so Paul was stoned outside the gates of Lystra. He was left for dead. He got up. What did he do? He went back into Lystra. Next day he went to Derby. Then he went back to Lystra to encourage the brothers. Then he went to the two cities from which the Jews who had stoned him came, Antioch and Iconium. And the gospel grew. Because we serve a king whose kingdom shall not fail. You know, as we think about what we talked about with the kids, we're on a trajectory. We know how history is going to end. History has been written. We don't know the details, but we know how it's going to end. For the Lord Himself will, decide, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are left, who are alive, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what's the practical application here? We can, as believers, engage in evangelism and ministry and loving our neighbors with the confidence that the Lord is going to bless it. Why? Because he always has. We can go forth with confidence and courage and boldness because we know how the story ends. That Christ wins. So first, we have a king whose kingdom shall not fail. Second, we have a powerful gospel. A gospel of hope that reconciles uh, embittered parties that have no business being reconciled. How do we know that? First because it is through the gospel that God has reconciled us to himself. See, as we go forth, serving the king whose kingdom shall not fail, it's not about us, it's not about you, it's not about the Presbyterian church, it's about Jesus. It is about Jesus. Why? Because it is in Jesus that hope is found, and in none other. This is the message that we take to the nations. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As we look at the names uh, in the list that Paul references, what, what is, what's going on here? So he has a cohort of fellow laborers for the Lord who have stayed with him though he is imprisoned. And they have voluntarily attached themselves to him in order to assist him in his ministry. What's amazing about 
this list. He has six names that he's going to reference here. These six names he's going to say, these people greet you. Hey, they want to say hi. Howdy. You know, Jesus who's called justice, he says hi. Uh, and, and he names six people. Now, here's what's amazing. Three of those names are Jewish names. And three of those names are Gentile names. Thirty years before this, Jesus died on the cross. And he rose again from the dead. And one of the implications of that was that he reconciled God and man. And because of that, he now, through the gospel, reconciles man to man. The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. It is hard to overstate just how bad the blood was between them. In fact, I had trouble trying to figure out an illustration for this one. It would be like a country in a civil war. That's the kind of hatred, one for the other. Or, or do you remember the conflict between the Serbians and the Bosnians? It's that kind of hatred. There's nothing that could bring these two groups together except for Jesus. And here in this snapshot, in this census of A.D. 63 in Rome, we have six people assisting Paul. And they're all, they're all Christians, but three of them are Jewish and three of them are from a Gentile background. The good news of the kingdom of God is that for everyone who believes, aren't you glad that the gospel isn't just for one category of people? Just for the rich and the privileged? Or, or just for the poor? Or just for the white? Or just for the black? Or just for those who are socially acceptable? Or, or those who are, you, you would never want to admit to knowing? Praise the Lord that, that Christ came to save His people, to offer the salvation to all those who would believe, to the Jew and the Gentile. You know, it, the gospel can reconcile groups. It can also reconcile people. We think about the things that we let stand between us as brothers and sisters in Christ, or within families, or within communities. None of them are as precious as the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has been spilled so that there might not be a divide. There might not be a divide between Jew and Gentile or, or Bruton or East Bruton or, or, or brother and sister. We see this actually in this list. You have two, two men mentioned here. First is Paul and the other is John Mark. Or, or I think Mark he's called here. Uh, do, you, do you remember who John Mark is? John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. But this is not the first time we've seen him in the New Testament. We've seen him in Acts 13. He left to go with Barnabas, who was his cousin, along with Paul to take the gospel on their first missionary journey. Now along the way, John Mark quit. He deserted Paul and Barnabas. And so when it came time to uh, start his second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him. And, and, and Paul said, why? He abandoned us. We don't need him. He's dead weight. And it caused a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And they split up. And so Barnabas took Mark and Luke chose Silas. And he headed on his second missionary journey. Things weren't real good between them. And yet, here we have, 12 years later, Mark serving with Paul in Rome. See, the gospel lets us say, you know, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. 
It lets there be reconciliation between parties as we die to our pride and instead seek to love each other well. In fact, the relationship between Paul and Mark was so strong that when we get to Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, his last letter when he's writing to Timothy saying, hey, please come, he's expecting to die any minute. He won't see Timothy again. Luke is the only person with him. And you know what he says? Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. The gospel is powerful. You know, as, we see, as we serve a king whose kingdom shall not fail, we, we carry the gospel message that provides hope for salvation. And it, as it works its way into our lives, it transforms us and our relationships. We actually see great evidence here of personal transformation in Paul. Uh, do you remember who Paul was? His Jewish name was Saul. His Greek name was Paul. He was called both at the same time. Uh, Saul didn't become Paul. Uh, that was his Greek name. But we see Saul before he's converted. Now remember, Luke is with Paul, and he's writing about Paul. as He's writing rack, uh, Acts. And he got his information from Paul about his previous lifestyle. Let me read to you what Luke, his good buddy, said about Paul. Acts chapter 8-3. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then in Acts 9 verses 1-2. through But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Jesus Christ... He, he breaks the bonds of sin. Our, our chains are gone once we turn to the Lord. In our past, I don't care what your past is. Jesus does because He paid for it. And if you are in Christ, the past is gone. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are new creations in Christ. Our identity is now in Jesus, not by all the baggage that is behind us. Think about all the baggage that Paul had. He stood there while they stoned Stephen. He dragged people to, to prison. Many of them likely died. And yet here he is in prison for Jesus. I wonder what happened to Paul. Jesus did. And that's the message that we get to take to people. As we serve a king whose kingdom shall not fail, we carry the powerful gospel, the simple powerful gospel. Simple enough that a child can understand it and complex enough that we will never plumb its depths for all of eternity. There's another name here that's worth mentioning. His name is Onesimus. Onesimus uh, was a, uh, a slave. He had run away, though, uh, from his master, Philemon. Uh, you'll note that there's another book called Philemon, and it's written to Philemon, uh, in, who is a member of the Colossian church. He had run away to Rome, and that's where uh, slave, runaway slaves went. And Jesus got a hold of him through the ministry of Paul. Can you imagine being discipled as a young believer by Paul, Luke, Mark, Aristarchus, and these others? That'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? And so Onesimus is converted, and he begins to help Paul and is of great value to him. In fact, we find in Philemon that Paul said he's very useful to Paul. Onesimus, the name, means useful. So Paul sends Onesimus back along with a letter to his owner Philemon in which Paul is asking for Philemon to receive him back, not as a slave but as a brother. 
And Paul says that whatever he owes you, whatever you've been defrauded, he's going to pay it. Paul will. Now, what's amazing, though, is that he sends Tychicus and Onesimus together to bear this letter. So Tychicus is a full-time missionary, full-time pastor, and Onesimus is a runaway slave. And in the same breath, he mentions slave and free because the gospel is for all. Jew and Greek, for brute and East Bruton, white, black, poor, rich, uh, for those you like and those you don't. It has the power to tear down strongholds of Satan in our lives and to change eternal destinies. So first point, we serve a king whose kingdom shall not fail. Two, we, we, we carry with us a powerful gospel that brings hope. And the third, God calls us to be busy about kingdom work. You know, as we take look at the census, this snapshot of the church in 8061 to 63, and we see these different people and what they're doing to serve the Lord. You know, if we took a snapshot of any other decade in the church's history, we would find the same thing. We would find different names, but God has raised up people of every generation to be about kingdom work. And do you know who he's raised up for right now? Here's punchline. You. It's us. We are the ones who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit and called to be about the king's work. We serve a king whose kingdom will not fail. And the gospel is going forth and is bringing hope. And how does it do that? How does the gospel go forth? By people in the church staying quiet and not telling anybody. No, that's not how it works. See, if you were to take off the lid of a beehive, you would see... In that behalf, you would have different kinds of bees doing different kinds of things, but they would all be doing the family business. What is the family business of the church? It is loving God and loving neighbor. It is being about the extension of Jesus' kingdom in the lives of those around you. He has strategically placed you and me in different spheres in different communities, in different workplaces, different ball teams, so that he might use us to tell people about the king whose kingdom shall not fail, about the, the gospel that brings hope to the darkest of situations. One such laborer who was working hard was Epaphras. Epaphras is one of those guys that's going to be close to the throne in heaven. Uh, I don't know if that's how it works, but it's a good analogy. Uh, We've come across his name before in Colossians, and that's because he's the evangelist who, uh, who founded the three churches in the Lycus Valley of Colossae, Laodicea, and Aeropolis. He had been converted, we think, under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and he had taken the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae. He had been a busy bee. He had been a worker, busy about God's work, telling them about the king whose kingdom shall not fail and the gospel that brings hope to the darkest situations. And he had planted it probably first in Colossae, we don't know, but three churches in three towns close by. And after some time, he went to see Paul, the one who had converted him, to see him and to bring him an update of how things were in Colossae and the challenges they faced. And Paul describes him here in verses 12 through 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I bear him witness that he has worked hard. 
for you and for those in Laodicea and in Aeropolis. So he's staying a little bit longer in Rome, even though this letter is going to Colossae. And Paul says, you you know what he's been doing? He's been praying a lot for y'all. I love this phrase, he's been struggling on your behalf in prayers. You know the primary thing that we can do for kingdom extension? We've got to tell others about Jesus, but we've got to tell Jesus about others. We, prayer. I love, this, I love this phrase, struggling in prayer. When's the last time you struggled in prayer? There seems to be a difference between struggling in prayer and a quick prayer, right? If, if all you got time for a quick prayer, do that. But struggling in prayer, where you come away tired because you've labored for the throne, what would happen if we struggled in prayer for our coworkers? for boldness that we might open our mouths, for our neighbors who are hurting, for our neighborhood, there would be conversions. What if we struggled in prayer as God's church that others might be connected to the church and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus? I bet something would happen if we struggled in prayer. There are other ways we can serve. We can be hospitable like Nympha here who hosted the Laodicean church in her home. Or Tychicus, who is a full-time missionary or pastor who has served alongside Paul. But there is a warning here, and it's don't be Demas, D-E-M-A-S. You can't see it here because Paul says Demas sends his greetings. Paul was serving alongside Paul, excuse me, Demas is serving alongside Paul in Rome, but he doesn't finish the race. He falls away. We know that. From 2 Timothy chapter 4. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You know, the primary mark of a believer is perseverance. It's continuing to walk with Jesus. It's like taking that census. When I was looking for my great-great-grandparents and I couldn't find them. When there's a census taken on the last day, uh, will it find us serving Jesus? Apparently Demas was one of those who will cry out, Lord, Lord, but Jesus will answer, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So today we finish up Colossians. What's the takeaway? Serve a king whose kingdom shall not fail. We bear a gospel that brings hope, and God calls us to be busy about His work. The gospel is going forth, and Jesus wins. And we get to be part of that story. What part do you play in His story? He beckons all to come to Him in salvation. It is free. He purchased it for you on the cross. He died and paid for your sins, and it was guaranteed, stamped with approval, and verified at the empty tomb. And one day Jesus will come back, and we will live with Him forever. Let's pray.